Section 2 of Pillar of Fire by Ray Bradbury. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Ben Tucker. 2. The incinerator was open. It never closed. There was a wide entrance all lighted up with hidden illumination. There was a helicopter landing table and a beetle drive. The town itself was dying down after another day of the dynamo. The lights were going dim, and the only quiet-lighted spot in the town now was the incinerator. God, what a practical name. What an unromantic name. William Lantry entered the wide, well-lighted door. It was an entrance, really. There were no doors to open or shut. People could go in and out. Summer or winter, the inside was always warm. Warm from the fire that rushed whispering up the high round flue to where the whirlers, the propellers, the air jets pushed the leafy gray ashes on away for a ten-mile ride down the sky. There was the warmth of the bakery here. The halls were flooded with rubber parquet. You couldn't make a noise if you wanted to. Music played in hidden throats somewhere. Not music of death at all, but music of life and the way the sun lived inside the incinerator. Or the sun's brother, anyway. You could hear the flame floating inside the heavy brick wall. William Lantry descended a ramp. Behind him, he heard a whisper and turned in time to see a beetle stop before the entranceway. A bell rang. The music, as if at a signal, rose to ecstatic heights. There was joy in it. From the beetle, which opened from the rear, some attendants stepped, carrying a golden box. It was six feet long, and there were sun symbols on it. From another beetle, the relatives of the man in the box stepped and followed as the attendants took the golden box down a ramp to a kind of altar. On the side of the altar were the words, We that were born of the sun return to the sun. The golden box was deposited upon the altar. The music leaped upward. The guardian of this place spoke only a few words. Then the attendants picked up the golden box, walked to a transparent wall, a safety lock also transparent, and opened it. The box was shoved into the glass slot. A moment later, an inner lock opened. The box was injected into the interior of the flue and vanished instantly in quick flame. The attendants walked away. The relatives, without a word, turned and walked out. The music played. William Lantry approached the glass fire lock. He peered through the wall at the vast, glowing, never-ceasing heart of the incinerator. It burned steadily, without a flicker, singing to itself peacefully. It was so solid, it was like a golden river flowing up out of the earth toward the sky. Anything you put into the river was borne upward, vanished. Lantry felt again his unreasoning hatred of this thing, this monster, cleansing fire. A man stood at his elbow. May I help you, sir? What? Lantry turned abruptly. What did you say? May I be of service? I, that is... Lantry looked quickly at the ramp and the door. His hands trembled at his sides. I've never been in here before. Never? The attendant was surprised. That had been the wrong thing to say, Lantry realized. But it was said, nevertheless. I mean, he said, not really. I mean, when you're a child, somehow you don't pay attention. I suddenly realized tonight that I didn't really know the incinerator. The attendant smiled. We never know anything, do we, really? I'll be glad to show you around. Oh, no, never mind. It, it's, it's a wonderful place. Yes, it is. The attendant took pride in it. 
One of the finest in the world, I think. Ah, uh, Landry felt he must explain further. I haven't had many relatives die on me since I was a child. In fact, none. So you see, I haven't been here for many years. I see. The attendant's face seemed to darken somewhat. What have I said now, thought Lantry. What in God's name is wrong? What have I done? If I'm not careful, I'll get myself shoved right into that damnable fire trap. What's wrong with this fellow's face? He seems to be giving me more than the usual going over. You wouldn't be one of the men who've just returned from Mars, would you? Asked the attendant. No, why do you ask? No matter, the attendant began to walk off. If you want to know anything, just ask me. Just one thing, said Lantry. What's that? This! Lantry dealt him a stunning blow across the neck. He had watched the fire trap operator with expert eyes. Now, with the sagging body in his arms, he touched the button that opened the warm outer lock, placed the body in, heard the music rise, and saw the inner lock open. The body shot out into the river of fire. The music softened. Well done, Lantry. Well done. Barely an instant later, another attendant entered the room. Lantry was caught with an expression of pleased excitement on his face. The attendant looked around as if expecting to find someone. Then he walked toward Lantry. May I help you? Just looking, said Lantry. Rather late at night, said the attendant. I couldn't sleep. That was the wrong answer, too. Everybody slept in this world. Nobody had insomnia. If you did, you simply turned on a hypno-ray, and sixty seconds later you were snoring. Oh, he was just so full of wrong answers. First he had made the fatal error of saying he had never been in the incinerator before, when he knew damned well that all children were brought here on tours every year from the time they were four to instill the idea of the clean fire death in the incinerator in their minds. Death was a bright fire. Death was warmth in the sun. It was not a dark shadowed thing. That was important in their education. And he, pale, thoughtless fool, had immediately gabbled out his ignorance. And another thing, this paleness of his. He looked at his hands and realized with growing terror that a pale man also was non-existent in this world. They would suspect his paleness. That was why the first attendant had asked, Are you one of those newly men returned from Mars? Here now, this new attendant was clean and bright as a copper penny, his cheeks red with health and energy. Lantry hid his pale hands in his pockets, but he was fully aware of the searching the attendant did on his face. I meant to say, said Lantry, I didn't want to sleep, I wanted to think. Was there a service held here a moment ago? asked the attendant, looking about. I don't know, I just came in. I thought I heard the fire lock open and shut. I don't know. The man pressed a wall button. Anderson? A voice replied. Yes? Locate Saul for me, will you? I'll ring the corridors. A pause. Can't find him. Thanks. The attendant was puzzled. He was beginning to make little sniffing motions with his nose. Do you smell anything? Lantry sniffed. No? Why? I smell something. Lantry took hold of the knife in his pocket. He waited. I remember once when I was a kid, said the man, and we found a cow lying dead in the field. It had been there two days in the hot sun. That's what this smell is. I wonder what it's from. 
Oh, I know what that is, said Lantry quietly. He held out his hand. Here. What? Me, of course. You? Dead several hundred years. You're not, Joker. The attendant was puzzled. Very. Lantry took out the knife. Do you know what this is? A knife? Do you ever use knives on people anymore? How do you mean? I mean, killing them. With knives or guns or poison? <laughs> you are an odd joker, the man giggled awkwardly. I'm going to kill you, said Lantry. Nobody kills anybody, said the man. Not anymore they don't, but they used to. In the old days. I know they did. This will be the first murder in three hundred years. I just killed your friend. I just shoved him into the firelock. That remark had the desired effect. It numbed the man so completely. It shocked him so thoroughly with its illogical aspects that Lantry had time to walk forward. He put the knife against the man's chest. I'm going to kill you. That's silly, said the man numbly. People don't do that. Like this, said Lantry. You see... The knife slid into the chest. The man stared at it for a moment. Lantry caught the falling body. End of section two.